Taiwan is coming close to curbing its COVID outbreak, says the health minister. At a Monday press conference, Health Minister Chen Shizong reported 274 local COVID infections and 15 deaths, while retroactively adding 73 cases to previous day's tallies. He said that the COVID infection rate was dropping off and developing into a controllable outbreak. Let's hear from him. So, according to the reports, the RT on May 30th was 1.02. Taiwan's R number was at its highest on May 13th, 14th and 15th, when it reached 15. At that time, it was extremely high. We instated Level 3 restrictions in Taipei and New Taipei on May 15th, and nationwide restrictions on May 19th. Since then, the RT has dropped to around 1, which means we are moving in the direction of a controllable outbreak. The R number is a way of measuring a disease's ability to spread. The health minister said that Taiwan's latest R number has dropped off dramatically since its peak, going from 15 to 1.02. The current R number of 1.02 indicates that each COVID patient is infecting just one more person on average. It's a good sign, he said, that the outbreak is moving into the controllable range. At a Monday press conference, the health minister addressed criticism that government orders for 10 million locally made COVID vaccines were placed too early, before the vaccines obtained authorization for emergency use. The Central Epidemic Command Center signed a purchase order with two Taiwanese pharmaceutical companies for 5 million doses each. Vaccines are a tool in the war against COVID. We need to be able to control it, to have the ability to manufacture it. The government must, of course, participate in such investment projects to reduce some of the pressure on the manufacturers. The CECC reiterated that vaccines were key to Taiwan's COVID strategy. It signed a contract with two major domestic vaccine makers, Medigen and United Biomedical, to buy 5 million doses from each company. It's a decision that's drawn criticism, as their experimental vaccines are still in phase two trials and neither has been authorized for emergency use. The vast majority of vaccines, of course, are purchased in the phase three stage. But starting to place orders during phase two isn't wrong either, because if you want dibs on the vaccines, that's how it's done. In the past, countries that have tried to develop their own vaccines have done this kind of thing. Facing criticism over the purchase orders, the health minister defended the decision at a press conference on Monday. He said Pfizer will finish phase three in 2023, Moderna in 2022, and AstraZeneca by this September at the earliest. He said that even so, many countries have already placed orders and granted emergency use authorization for the three vaccines. He said that, in fact, buying early was standard protocol, as waiting too long to sign meant missing out on supplies. When we purchase vaccines from other countries, we actually place orders while the candidates were still in clinical trials. This was the way to ensure we could get the vaccines relatively quickly and to make sure vaccine makers had sufficient funding and incentives to accelerate vaccine development. Critics point out that foreign vaccines were granted emergency use authorization only after starting phase three trials. But in Taiwan, vaccine makers are allowed to apply for authorization right after the completion of phase two trials. 
In response, the CECC said that AstraZeneca only had 3,220 people in its Phase 1 and 2 trials, while Moderna and Pfizer had fewer than 1,000 people in their first two trials. Taiwan's Phase 2 trials involved more than 3,800 people, it said, saying it vouched for the safety of the vaccine candidates. There were nearly 4,000 participants. That's why we say that at such a scale, we all know that phase two tests for safety, and if a vaccine can pass a study of such scale, there is no safety concern. Investing in domestic vaccine manufacturers is a form of investment. Of course, there's a chance that the investment won't work out. But I believe that, going by the current data, the antibodies that these vaccines induce are considered to be robust. The physician said that investing in vaccines is inherently risky, but that given that demand outstrips supply, purchase orders must be placed before a product reaches the market. He said that pre-ordering vaccines is the only way to ensure a supply for the nation. The president said Monday that she welcomed efforts by private entities to procure vaccines for Taiwan. Last week, Hanhai Precision Industry and the Buddhist organization for Guansan offered to procure foreign vaccines to donate to the government. On Monday, President Tsai Ing-wen denied that her administration would obstruct their efforts. We are extremely grateful for their enthusiastic proposals, and the government will proactively provide assistance. The government has already announced that civic groups will be managed by Deputy Minister of the Interior Chen Dongyan. As for corporations, their window of communication will be Minister of Economic Affairs Wang Meihua. The government is happy to work together with the people to ensure the vaccines are safe, effective and legal. There will absolutely be no issues of obstruction. Tsai said her administration would help private entities during the procurement process, which includes safety assessments by the central government. Tsai also said the central government was working to expedite the delivery of its foreign vaccine orders. China says it is opposed to Japan donating COVID-19 vaccines to Taiwan. Last Friday, Japan said it was in talks with AstraZeneca over supplying a portion of its stockpile to Taiwan. Tokyo's announcement triggered an angry protest from Beijing, which said Taiwan could easily obtain vaccines from China and was instead exploiting the issue for political gain, specifically in its campaign for independence. We heard that Taiwan will not have a steady vaccine supply until July. Before that point, it will not have sufficient vaccines. Considering the relationship between Taiwan and Japan, we will have a good look at the details of providing Taiwan with vaccines. During the March 11th Tohoku earthquake, Taiwan provided various types of aid, including donations. So, of course, when it is facing difficulty, we want to help. Last week, Japan said it was willing to give part of its AstraZeneca vaccine supply to Taiwan. The announcement drew a sharp objection from Beijing. In a routine press conference, China's foreign ministry spokesman Zhao Lijian said Taiwan could easily obtain vaccines from China. He blasted Taiwan's government for attempting to seek independence by, quote, exploiting the issue of vaccines. In turn, Taiwanese official Chiu Chui-zhen said it was the CCP that's politically manipulating the vaccine issue, thwarting the efforts of a third party to assist Taiwan. Such behavior is disheartening, he said, adding that the Taiwanese people were now seeing the true face of Beijing.
Saving lives is of the utmost importance. It is paramount. Preserving life and safety should transcend everything. We want to solemnly call on the other side of the strait to show some self-respect and cease its political manipulation of the vaccine issue. Over in Japan, there are reports of China working behind the scenes to prevent Japan's vaccine donation. China knows of this development and China will absolutely attempt to obstruct it. Although they have mobilized some pro-China parliamentarians and some pro-China Japanese officials to block the donation, the Japanese cabinet and the majority of the Japanese parliament are still in favor. They believe that Japan should donate its surplus vaccines to Taiwan. To circumvent Beijing, Japan is considering donating to Taiwan by way of the COVAX Global Initiative or a private organization, according to Japanese media agency Kyoto News. Sales of pulse oximeters and smartwatches that measure blood oxygen are soaring. That's because a dip in blood oxygen levels is one of the most characteristic symptoms of a case of COVID-19. Having a device like this at home can help you check if your cough could be COVID or if it's just a cold. But there are lots of products on the market. We asked an expert to help us sort the options. The entire stock of smartwatches is brought up from the warehouse to go on the shelves. Anyone with blood oxygen levels below 94% should go straight to the hospital, says the Taiwan Society of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. That's led to a run on sales of pulse oximeters, which measure blood oxygen, as well as interest in smartwatches with oxygen detection features. Some of the smartwatches on the market have functions that detect blood oxygen levels. Turn them on and press the watch down firmly on your wrist. Then point the screen upward, and within about 10 seconds, you can see your blood oxygen saturation level. During the pandemic, consumers have been specially inquiring about this. In this wave, sales could grow by 10 percent. Retailer says inquiries have grown 10 percent, but online, there are even more options. The prices vary widely, though, with some products under 1,000 NT and others more than 10 times as much. This electronics expert tested them for us. On his right hand, you can see the Xiaomi Mi Band 6, which costs less than 1,000 NT. On his left hand, the Apple Watch S6, which costs over 13 times as much. The Xiaomi watch takes longer to get a reading, but they come out almost identical at 95% and 96%. Mostly what really matters is the way you wear the watch. Be sure to adjust it to the correct likeness and do the test in a fixed, quiet location. In principle, it's the same as measuring your heart rate. It sends intense pulsed light through your wrist to measure the state of your blood and blood vessels. No matter if it's a few hundred dollars, a few thousand or tens of thousands, they're all pretty much equally accurate. And the experts say there are lots of variables that can influence the readings of such watches. They're not to be taken as a definitive diagnosis. Graduation season is around the corner, and that means thousands of job seekers will soon be hitting the market. Most companies say they are willing to hire recent graduates. But the job search could be harder than normal for many, as the economy reels from the latest wave of COVID. We spoke to one CEO who says candidates with strong digital skills are in high demand. A woman talks to a colleague on video. 
Many people in Taiwan are now working from home, and many companies are adopting the format as their new normal. When our company first started, we had an enormous amount of training in digital goods. Before COVID began, we had already completed a lot of training, so we adopted remote working very early on in the pandemic. This CEO has worked hard to cultivate remote working skills in his workforce. He believes online work will make powers of persuasion in audiovisual channels more important than traditional business skills, like engaging in-person presentations. It used to be that clients could perceive you through all their senses. Now there's just two senses left, audio and visual. The most important thing is our grasp of the argument and refining the content we have to express. Companies need workers with new ways of thinking and strong reasoning and integration skills, he says. His company offers starting salaries of two to three times the industry average. A survey by a job search website indicated that companies are offering fresh graduates and postgrads higher starting salaries this year than last year, an eight-year high, mainly in an effort to attract digital talent. In this COVID year, many companies have actively pursued a digital transition strategy. The digital natives who are graduating now are actually their main candidates for recruitment. They really want candidates to demonstrate digital marketing skills in their applications. Only 94.8% of companies say they're willing to hire fresh graduates this year. That's slightly up from last year's 93.6% which was a five-year low. Experts say the crisis for the food and drink, tourism and hospitality industries is the problem. A shortage of jobs could mean many new graduates have to wait longer than average to land their first role. Let's go now to Pingdong to meet possibly the oldest doctor on the COVID front line. Dr. Luo Yiming, age 78, has been in ear, nose and throat medicine for 50 years. Now he's volunteered to deliver COVID screenings in his hometown of Chaozhou, where a cluster of local cases recently broke out. 78-year-old Dr. Luo is dressing himself in full PPE. The veteran ear, nose and throat doctor is working with Pingdong Christian Hospital to deliver COVID screenings in Chaozhou Township. The hospital asked if I would be willing to support the rapid test in Chaozhou. I think it makes sense for ear, nose and throat doctors to do this because we really understand the nose. You have to take the swab from the nose. So I was happy to agree. Dr. Luo has been in medicine for half a century and is the oldest practicing ear, nose and throat doctor in Pingdong. As the virus proliferates, medical personnel are getting spread thin. Dr. Luo's family isn't keen on him being involved, and he's not immune to anxiety either. I was a bit scared. I've had a vaccine which helps, but my family is very scared and don't want me to do it. But the chance is here and I think I should offer my service and experience the situation. After he began the work, Dr. Luo was delighted to find the PPE and equipment on site was better than he expected. Well-resourced, he felt safer than in his regular clinic, he says. The only thing is, testing stations can't use aircon. Pingdong is regularly hitting 30 degrees, and in PPE, the risk of heat stroke is very real. Colleagues urge him to take it easy, but he says the work invigorates him. A local COVID cluster recently broke out in Chaozhou, and the spirit of service carries him onward. The Legislative Yuan has given a dramatic budget increase to pandemic relief. On Monday, lawmakers passed an amendment that doubles the government's COVID bailout budget to 840 billion NT, which is more than the cabinet's original request. 
The Cabinet says the funds will be used to support the worst victims of the pandemic, including individuals like taxi drivers, tour guides and working parents taking unpaid leave for school closures. The Legislative Yuan is back in session. On Monday, the first item on the agenda was a budget amendment sponsored by the DPP. The amendment, which grants a bigger bailout budget than the Cabinet requested, met initial opposition from the KMT. As long as the government and the people need it, we will exercise our duty as the opposition party to keep the government in check while providing bailout relief to the people. But we will absolutely not be giving carte blanche to the administration. Our businesses are waiting for relief and our people are waiting for support. In this unprecedented crisis, I don't know what special insights the KMT has that would compel it to oppose this budget. Let's hear what the KMT says in a moment. It'll make no sense. Also, everyone has already signed off on the terms of our cross-party negotiations. The only one who has yet to sign is the KMT whip. DPP caucus whip Ke Jianming underscored the urgency of the situation and called on the KMT to not block the budget revision. But the KMT was unmoved and the two sides geared up for a battle of votes. We don't want the government to be in such a rush to earmark all this money. To be honest, we still have not used up the bailout budget earmarked last year. We haven't exhausted it yet. Taiwan is not short on money. From my understanding, the day after the budget is promulgated by the president, the executive yuan will finalize a 260 billion NT package comprising relief and inoculation programs. This package will be sent to the legislative yuan for an item-by-item -item review. When the time comes, the Premier and all the ministers will come to the Legislative Yuan for interpolation and reviews. Despite its initial objection, the KMT agreed to support the bill during cross-party negotiations. The bill cleared its third and final reading at noon. And with that, Taiwan's COVID bailout relief budget was raised from 420 billion to 840 billion NT. Its enforcement period was extended by one year to June 30, 2022. Lawmakers also passed a raft of auxiliary resolutions to the budget. The DPP agreed to the KMT's proposal that all travelers to outlying islands be tested for COVID on Taiwan proper. The equipment to enforce the policy is to be set up within a week. The DPP also agreed to raise the budget allocation for local governments to 10 percent. Due to recent rainfall, Taiwan has called off its plan to tighten water rationing on June 1st. Shinzu County has narrowly missed losing its water supply two days a week. In Miaoli, Taichung and northern Zhanghua, rotational water cuts will continue but will not be extended by eight hours a week as previously planned. Rain has fallen across Taiwan for four straight days, bringing nearly 90 million tons of water to national reservoirs. In Miaoli County, more than 800,000 tons of water have fallen over Mingde Reservoir, lifting it from critical lows of 12% capacity to enough to supply the area for a month. Electricity prices are on the up. Tai Power's summer rates take effect starting Tuesday, with hikes between 13 and 27 percent for most users. The average household can expect to pay at least 500 NT more on their next power bill. Tai Power asks customers to conserve power this summer, to spare their wallet, and to avoid triggering another national blackout. The fridge door swings open and shut. With a pandemic underway, digging around for snacks is a national pastime and having the lights on all day is a common state of affairs. 
but it's time to start saving energy to avoid the pain on your next electricity bill. Starting June 1st, summer rates will come into effect ahead of an anticipated power crunch. Households that use less than 120 kilowatt hours each month will not see an adjustment. Those that use up to 330 kilowatt hours a month will only see a slight adjustment of approximately 0.2 NT per kilowatt hour. Under Thai Power's summer pricing, households that use less than 120 kilowatt hours will be charged 1.63 NT per kilowatt hour as before. Those that use between 121 and 330 kilowatt hours will see rates go up from 2.1 to 2.38 NT. For those that use up to 500 kilowatt hours a month, rates will go up from 2.89 to 3.52 NT. Rate hikes range from 13 to 27 percent, with heavy power users facing the greatest increase. Over these past two days, there's been heavy rain across Taiwan, along with a dip in temperatures. That's resulted in less air conditioning use. But because people are staying at home amid the pandemic, Taiwan's total power consumption has been astonishing. According to Thai Power, the average household uses 291 kilowatt hours a month in off-peak periods and 434 kilowatt hours a month in the summer. That means the average power bill will go up by 500 NT after the summer price hike, or even more due to the pandemic. Sometimes when it's very hot, I just switch on the AC for a bit. You save where you can, but if you can't, oh well. Watch a little less TV, turn on the AC a little less often. That's all you can do. With pandemic restrictions in place, there are some who are barely venturing out of their homes. In the month of May, power consumption soared to record heights. Thai Power urges the public to save power, to save cash, and to save Taiwan from the threat of more electricity outages.